You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, the Met has now staged two operas in working-class middle America, two mixed reviews. Were these bold artistic choices or a bid to shake up elite opera audiences, or did someone in the props department just have access to a trailer? Then, countertenor Reginald Mobley takes a free throw on being a prominent black artist in early music. Plus, in the two-minute drill, the Grammy winners are in. Do we agree with the results? Did the OBS bump have any effect? Stay tuned to find out. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or maybe even email us your hot takes. Mailbag at operaboxscore.com or just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say tab on our website, operaboxscore.com. However you contribute, you'll get an OBS beer coaster, an OBS lapel pin, and the classic number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot take. And I should emphasize, I'm not sure if our listeners know this, this is a finger-sized foam finger, so you can wear a finger on your finger to really show that we are number one. I'm doing it right now. Oliver Camacho, welcome to the show. <laughs> Ashley's currently uh, waving around. She's picking her nose with a uh, foam finger. Oliver Camacho, have you picked your nose with our foam finger yet? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the foam is absorbent enough, actually, to be a good, you know, uh, it's like a sponge. So if you do have... You know, extra drainage. Let's, for... let's leave something to the imagination. That's true. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what I'm doing. Is that the voice of Matt Cummings? It's me. I'm back. Oh He's here. What are your opinions on mucus, Matt? Entering with a quip and then having nothing else to say. That's my brand. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave, what is your quip of the day? Uh, well, it's Super Bowl week, and honestly, I just hope that Taylor's boyfriend has fun. That's really what oh. I hope. It's also my birthday this week, so I'm mostly just, you know, excited to be another year older. Oh, happy birthday, everybody. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. So an article in Van Magazine caught uh, our collective attention this week. So we wanted to chat a little bit about Van Magazine's Turn the Machine Inward by musicologist Michaela Baranello. Uh, it was a critique of the current and previous met stagings of Lucia and Carmen. These are both set in middle America slash the Rust Belt slash vague rural area slash possibly the South. Uh, Baranello claims a couple of different things. Uh, specifically that it ignores the complexities of opera in America and presents an elementary, ingenuine depiction of the rural and or the poor. But they didn't have to. Um, there was a <laughs> quote that was really, it stood out to me. So I'm going to read this and then I'm going to kick it over to my gents to talk a bit. Uh, one of the quotes that really rose to the surface for me was, why has the Met, a literal gilded temple of European art, started staging middle American malaise? I am not the first to ask. Zachary Wolf of the New York Times, for one, isn't happy about it. There's something depressing, even corrosive, in taking such a superficial glance at our fellow Americans. He wrote, calling Carmen's production image of flyover country glib and exoticizing. Perhaps we don't expect better from the Met than opera's take on hillbilly elegy, but why can't we? 
Wow, is there anything more disdainful in the year of our Lord 2024 than calling something hillbilly elegy? How the mighty have fallen. <laughs> I mean, it's first great. of all, it's, yeah, I, I have my own thoughts on hillbilly elegy, but that's for a, uh, that's for another podcast. But Bonus yeah, Weston. content. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's our, that's for our Patreon that doesn't exist. Uh, Weston, you and I both had some feelings about this whole article. Why don't you kick us off? Yes, we did. So this is kind of, this is an interesting article. This is something- As a hillbilly. As a hillbilly, <laughs> I, I am I am from the deep south, and I believe Oliver, our you're not allowed know this. to say that about him. Only he is. <laughs> um, as a, as the resident hillbilly on the podcast, I I do think that this is uh, this is really indicative of a very strong phenomenon that happens um, in regions outside the south, outside rural areas. Um, that I don't think that people really notice a lot of the time. Uh, I remember when I first went to college and uh, I I was, you know, bonding with all my fellow little baby freshmen, you know, talking about all the movies we liked, all the music we listened to. Um, and I realized there was this whole subgenre of film, especially, which I would call films about the South that Southerners have never seen. <laughs> and mm-hmm. some of these, some right, of these movies- I literally got was on TikTok maybe two days ago, and uh, I was scrolling through my feed, and there was a TikTok that came up um, that was uh, uh, actually a pretty funny one. It was about um, <laughs> white-on-white microaggressions. I thought it was extremely funny for the most part, and it was talking about things like, oh... Uh, you don't look very exotic at all, or like, uh, um, or like, you know, oh, you, uh, uh, you don't use any seasoning in your food, you know, that that sort of stuff, you know, and that sort of stuff doesn't really bother me uh, in the slightest. I think it's kind of funny, but there was one statement that he made, and it's like, oh, you're from the South, you're so articulate, and people want to experience this exoticized version of Southern stories or, or poor stories, you know, and they have no intention of actually getting to know the people who created those stories, who suffered through those stories. And, you know, the South is an easy scapegoat. You know, I I know this is mostly talking more about sort of rust belty kind of stuff, but the South is an easy scapegoat because we are, you know, politically often not on the right side of history you know there are some old-fashioned and, notions and the and many northerners have an overly romanticized v- understanding of our own absolutely history. absolutely <laughs> and that's something i always you know uh, i would always see too you know i would i would i remember in college too i got got getting lectures about racism in the south from someone from new hampshire who had never met a black person until she went to college you know that i I will let that person remain nameless. She's lovely. Uh, she's learned her lesson. Um, but this is this is a common problem. Uh, now, the extent to which this exists in opera, I think, is kind of interesting to me. And uh, th- you really should read this entire article if you're listening to this podcast. We'll put it up on our website um, because it's really detailed and goes into a lot of really thought-provoking places. Um but this is almost a, a new phenomenon in American opera because we've we've seen this kind of, you know, Euro trash style deconstruction of opera all over the place in Europe. You know, that's why we call it Euro trash, where you're, you know, completely changing the context. You're 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 making poor people the center. You're you're demystifying it and trying to tell a story. And that's very normal if you're going to see something in Germany. But you know, not just trying to tell a story, but trying to make a larger point about 
today's yes, yes. society and yes. draw a exactly. parallel there. Like, that is, in theory, what these updated productions are supposed to be doing. Exactly. But this is not something that we've seen as often in the U.S. We are just now, I think, really in the past few years, starting to see um, Reggie Theater kind of trickle down into American opera. And honestly, I love Reggie Theater. I am the Euro trash guy. Um, but this is an interesting take on are we doing it superficially or at least is the met doing it superficially and i i'm i it, they put forward a pretty convincing argument that they were um uh, and i know ashley you also had we were talking about this even before the show as you could probably tell by how many words i've spoken and i don't want to keep talking <laughs> so ashley what are your thoughts well you know as the other uh, resident hillbilly on today's panel um <laughs> i i echo some of the sentiments that you have i too when I moved from the rural South to the city of Chicago, uh, amended and shapeshifted my accent because in the first few days that I was here, uh, people spoke down to me. They spoke more slowly to me. They assumed I wasn't intelligent. Uh, and so now this accent that I have, you'll hear twangs, but it's, it's a, a Midwestern, you know, redneck hybrid. And, and I think that when we're looking at, you know, on one hand, I think the creative choices to set these stories there in that sort of Euro trash style and try to modernize and update, I applaud those choices. I just think the execution was a bit short-sighted and poor. Um, I also, it's it's very funny. I was not expecting my home state of Arkansas to be featured so prominently in this in this article <laughs> because Baranello, the author, until very recently, now she's at Temple, uh, but before that, she was at the University of Arkansas and in, in teaching in the musicology department, teaching young opera singers about music history and musicology, and she speaks a lot to their experiences of being, you know, they're at this research one institution, but it's a southern rural research one institution. So asking them about their operatic experiences while they're trying to learn about them, they, you know, most of them at best had seen less than counting on one hand the amount of like live performances, live operas. And that's frankly, you know, not to be all woe is me about it, but that's quadruple what I had when I was going through that same sort of classical music and opera study in my undergrad in the state of Arkansas in the rural South. I knew yeah. I would have to leave and go somewhere else to be able to pursue this art form, to be able to learn more about it, to experience it. And frankly, for me, that's just... um that just lets you know how little some areas of this country have going on. And it's exactly why we need things like the Met HD, because those kids can see that when they can't get to the Met, what they can't get to San Francisco. But in thinking about sort of the, the missteps of these sorts of stagings, you've got a couple of different combinations here. There's, you know, there's North versus South, there's urban versus rural, there's rich versus poor, there's coasts versus middle America flyover. And all of these come down to two polarized and misunderstood communities. The people from one community don't understand the other, and so they will use caricatures of what they know about it. I think this is exacerbated by the fact that the two directors that put on these stagings in these rural Middle America, Southern, Rust Belt, whatever you want to call them, neither of them mm. are Americans. Neither of them have much access to the culture of the states besides the places where they've been, which I'm going to put money down is probably New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, maybe Seattle if you're nasty, who knows. But I think that part <laughs> of the reason that we have, or at least some of us may have had issues with the lack of genuineness uh, in these in these portrayals and these stagings might have something to do with 
with that, you know, very much like, you know, I I can say bad things about my family, but you can't, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm somebody who's, who's part of it. And so I would be able to tell the story better, at least more effectively than, than you did. Not everybody probably feels that way, but it's, it's definitely something that I, that I thought about, but also because it was at a, place like the Met, which is largely going to have what we would consider a coastal elite audience, would a genuine portrayal or something that had more accurate, you know, motions and depiction and and body movement and gestures from the artist, would that have even mattered to a coastal audience? And I I do think that the audience is key here in terms of one of the points of this article, which is that it is kind of toothless in its critique of American society, because it's so overgeneralized. And that's because a lot of the people who would be criticized by that kind of like uh, an indictment of our society and the situations that lead people to these kinds of desperate actions, like, you know, abandoning your post in the military to follow a woman who you think loves you, but like doesn't really. And she is making every choice that she can, even if they're self-destructive. And then you get so obsessed because you've thrown everything away. And that kind of like very human misalignment uh, of like understanding each other and and having a relationship like that is it's supposed to be juxtaposed against this like crushing power structure but if you're not willing to indict the power structure yeah that here is like swapped out the military for walmart and capitalism like it's hard to make that point and have any credibility when you're funded by oil barons yeah or Walmart, or because Wal- especially or in the Northwest Arkansas, Ar- Specific- yeah, specifically exactly. the Waltons, yeah. In Northwest Arkansas in particular, the Waltons fund literally everything. They funded half my undergraduate education. Uh, but they, you know, it is, they are this like corporate machine that we're allegedly trying to fight against, but they're also the very resources and funding that bring this type of art to yeah. the areas that that are being portrayed in these places. You know, the Waltons have Crystal Bridges, which is the most incredible, you know, amassing of American art in the country. I encourage all of you to check it out in the unlikely event that you're in Northwest Arkansas. Um, But yeah, that's the thing. It's like, are you not calling them out because you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you? Uh, I'm not sure. And I think it's some of that. And I also think it's them trying to have it both ways and be seen as this big innovator in the space and being, trying to be, get the props of being in dialogue with, the misogyny of opera with the racism of opera but without actually delving beyond the surface other than painting a coat of like realist like realist realism drag on top of it i I think there's there's also something to be said that you know this is always going to be kind of an impossible task right you know i i think about you know when was opera truly populist ever really there have been moments, I, I think of like um, the sort of uh, German opera subgenre, Zeitoper, which was very active in the early 20th century, where you're specifically doing opera about the people and times that you are in. Uh, a lot of, you know, uh, early sort of socialist communist operas from that ilk. Um, but then by the time, you know, something like that, I mean, not to say Stadt, uh, Abstieg und Fall der Stadt Mahagoni was really... Uh, at Saitoper, but uh, an opera like that did eventually get performed at the Met well after it had any teeth the way it did when it first came out in the uh, 20s uh, and 30s. Um, and I think that there is always going to be a certain disconnect when you're talking about something that requires the resources of grand opera, you know, where that money is coming from. 
uh, to challenge itself in any meaningful way, even though there are so many great examples throughout history where where it was possible or or if even if not possible, like something was written at least. And then, you know, 20 years later, it could finally be performed because the, the right people were in power or the social movements of the time were powerful enough to be able to independently fund something genu- genuinely subversive. Um, and this ties into a lot of things about, you know, class, race, especially. Um, uh, but I think w- what we're talking about here, I think the the solution is uh, locality. You know, we're talking about, um, uh, well, a, f- a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about Opera Birmingham's new opera about Helen Keller, hyper local show, very much um, uh reaching out to the um, visually impaired and hearing impaired communities. Uh, They also did Driving While Black, which was also a big reach out to a very small, very specific local audience. And those operas were extremely powerful and extremely um, relevant. But at the same time, you want to be able to like see something of a large size. Those were both small shows by Met Opera standards. Is it even possible to have something like the Met do something that is relevant about the people who aren't going to the opera in New York City. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there have been pockets in the past of of more hyper local things. I mean, heck, even the Met went on tour until what 1986 or something like that. Uh, but they also hit major cities. Yeah. But you know, there were these. That actually, she mentions uh, the author mentions this book, uh, Opera for the People, which talks about you know the 19th century culture of English language opera. So these smaller tours that are speaking to that hyper localism that you mentioned. They you know they were going to places. She talks about soprano Emma Abbott who going to places like Fort Wayne, La Crosse, uh, Galveston, Little. Little Rock, Waco, you know, these are not yeah. major cities in any way, but in the 1880s, there there was enough of an audience where this singer could go on tour and take, you know, Zalame, take Lucia, which was one of her more famous roles. So there were periods in American history where we we knew more about this sort of stuff. And and there are also a lot of, of critiques and suggestions on why the culture has evolved in the way that it has. But I I, I take your point on on sort of the hyperlocalism. Uh, angle. I also, again, just to reiterate, I mean, I think everybody should have access to good art regardless of where you live in our country. So that's why I think the things like the Met HD broadcasts, as, you know, big and grand and expensive as they can be, you know, I, I hear the argument that people say it's taking away from the audiences, and I put that argument right in the trash because the people of Little Rock, Arkansas aren't going to the Met. The people of uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota, are probably not going to the Met. And if they are, they're not going very often. Uh, so this is a way for people to nationwide be able to have access to that grand art, even with staging by an Australian that sort of suggests it's Rust Belt, but not really. And we still have baritone claws in the acting. So it's, um, <laughs> you know, and, and to be fair, this is sort of a step in the right direction, mayhaps. Were we expecting them to solve it all and get it right the first time? No, absolutely not. You know, and and this is not something I ever really expected the Met to get absolutely right. Um, and uh, you know, I know we both we've all been talking here, but I think it's time we let uh, our coastal elite Oliver Camacho give us <laughs> an you. opinion. Sorry, as a Chicagoan, <laughs> I know I don't have a reason to be a part of this conversation, but let's just 
dial it back a little bit and and talk about what the intent and quickly what the intention was for both of these productions. What was the goal? Who were the people that were brought in to achieve that goal? Was the right team chosen? Was the intention good in the first right, place? Right. I mean, we're talking about two brand new productions that are meant to you know be more accessible for new audiences to opera to help them find themselves on the stage to tell a story that um you know makes it easier for them to understand the plot of Carmen and Lucia not that those plots are the most complicated plots <laughs> in opera but yeah they can make make them more relatable <laughs> uh they took a swing and a miss i think on both accounts but i do think that they had the right intention and i do think that you know the Lucia is a little bit less problematic than the the Carmen. Uh, I think the Lucia was for at least HD was a very interesting show to watch. Um, I don't know if there are many singers who can actually do that staging and do that production uh, as well as Nadine Sierra did. No um, yeah, and the same, That's fair. and yeah. even more so, the Carmen. We remember oh. that. Remember that. Um, it was Anita Rajvilashvili's show yep. originally, and I don't think she would have fit in this production. But Igol, who is whatever twenty seven going on yeah. twenty one, uh, she really looked the part. And um, I don't see how that show has any legs unless they find a singer as youthful looking as Igol, who can really look like a hillbilly. I don't think Anita Rashvili looks like a hillbilly. She looks like an opera singer, you know? In her heyday, she was a stage animal, but uh, she's more of a, a stateswoman now, you know? And I don't see her standing on top of a, um, you know, a gas, a gasoline dispenser. What do you call those machines? A pump. <laughs> a pump. <laughs> a gas pump? Yeah. So we spoken like a true ivory tower resident. But like, Oliver, you drive. You have a car. Yeah. I know you Well, I don't pump my own gas, but... Um, <laughs> But remember that Brianna Hunter came on the show and told us that Carrie Cracknell yeah. was very collaborative and was, you know, wanting to hear people's ideas. And, you know, Brianna Hunter, being American, I forget exactly where she's from, but maybe had a lot of input. But if you bring in like Alina Garancha uh, and ask her input, is she going to have the same ideas, you know? So I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that this was this was very much a case of like, I think everyone did as good a job as they could, you know, but you have to be willing to take some artistic risks to say something artistically demanding. And that means hiring people from out out in the boonies, you know, uh, go into uh, uh, Ashley's hometown or my hometown, <laughs> find someone who's willing to collaborate with you in a meaningful way, you know, get a uh, hill consultant spent time. Yes, we are. We are going to be the resident rural consultants. Exactly. Well, Listeners, uh, we are going to, if I sweet talk somebody, I am sure they are going to post the link to this article from Van Magazine on our website. I encourage you to take a gander, read through it, see if you agree with our discussions, and whether you do or you don't, let us know about it. Mailbag at operaboxscore.com. Weston, is that right? Got it in one. Uh, free throw. Counter-tenor Reginald Mobley just lost <laughs> his second Grammy nomination. Bless his heart. I was certain that he was going to win for his album Because with pianist Baptiste Trottignon. And we spent most of this free throw talking about that album and his collaboration. 
Uh, but I also wanted to ask him as we begin this conversation, what it is like to be a very prominent Black classical musician in February. Are you tired? <laughs> I, you know, I'm someone, I, I understand my role. And I think mm. to people who, you know, who gifts are given, responsibility is given, I mean, it's, it's our duty to exercise it. I will never get tired of speaking on issues about blackness or queerness or, you know, being Southern. You know, the, it's, it's, it's important that there has to be someone to answer the question. There has to be someone who, who keeps the light on all night so that so that things can be said so that these issues can be spoken for if everyone else in the world is tired of talking about how tired black people are i'm always going to be the person with the light on to let you know <laughs> when you ask and the same for anything else like it's 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 my it's my life's privilege to be able to speak eloquently and fully and clearly on issues that are important that mean that mean something to 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 speaking towards the idea of finally getting past all these issues of division and walls and finding a way to move and actually progress in some sort of way i can't remember exactly for what uh occasion it was uh but you were, there was an article written about you, maybe in like the Guardian, uh, about some project you had done, and um, yeah, you had selected some music, and they asked your opinion about, you know, being a black person and whatever working with a historically white, you know, organization. And I'm yeah, I'm not remember. I'm sure you have articles like this written about you, like, like all the time. Um, but as somebody who is, you know, characterized as like, you know, he we got one through, you know, like. <laughs> Are you looking for in your now your leadership roles? Are you looking for the next generation or the next couple of people who will carry the mantle? And when your work is done with certain organizations, you could say, I'm going to pass this off to you now so I can do something else, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the, one of the first things we did when I, when I, when the role was created for me with Hamlin Hyde Society, um, as the program consultant was to was to get Anthony Tracy King involved to get him in the organization and I mean it's it's all about passing it forward and really opening the door you know I've, I've always kind of thought about the 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 glass ceiling and people keep talking about breaking and I don't think that's really what happens I think for so long like you said the one who got through is that the glass ceiling is hinged and so if that's the case and if I get through, I'm just going to hold the damn. No, it's okay. If this I is get, a podcast. <laughs> if I just get through, I'm going to hold it open for the next person. I don't, I don't, I don't pat myself on the back. I'm not proud of being the first of this and that. Uh, even living in Boston, the city of first of this and that. 
I'm more interested in who's the second or the third because I, you know, one time is a fluke, but twice is a pattern. And, and I think three times it is now an established thing. And that's what's important to me. I want to know who's the fourth programming consultant for Hamlin Hyde Society. I want to know who is the third or fourth person leading, you know, Philharmonia Baroque, our Paulus Fire, our, you know, standing and singing as a soloist with Academy of Ancient Music or Monteverdi Choir. It's all about truly forging that path and seeing that the path is being being walked. I noticed that some organizations are also asking you to like teach and to uh, you know master classes this type of thing. Do you have any um, sort of criteria that you give back to those organizations? Okay, I'll do this, but you have to A, B, C if if you want me to do it. <laughs> uh, sometimes it depends on yeah. the organization, depends on, on on what they want, and I make it very clear to some of them that I. I'm not really going to go on with the kids, kid gloves on. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say what needs to be said as kindly and southernly as possible. Uh, but I'm not going to hide from what I see or feel is the truth. And, and, and that seems to be what people are asking for anyway. Uh, I, and when I, and when I go and I, I know that some people will, some professors are, are, our administrators will say one thing about how, you know, having someone like myself in in the room is it's important, and you should re- you should, you know, be mindful of 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 how much hard work he he did to get to this place, or how much he did this and that and that. And I'm like, that doesn't matter to me. I think what matters to me is is focusing on helping a student or someone find their path. I I don't, I don't want to just to sit in the room and, and, and regale people with, with anecdotes and stories. And I don't want to tell them that this was my path and this is the path you should follow. I want to work with them for, to, to help them find the path that works for them. I mean, it's, it's the thing that I, I come across the most is students just need to be told and that they should just allow themselves, give themselves permission to explore and find their own paths. And I mean, I mean, if you know my story at all, there is nothing conventional about the way I got to where I am. And I think that that means that it's possible for pretty much anyone, as long as you, you know, have a chance to, to really stop and think about really what you want from the world and what you want from the career and what you want from yourself. Like, you know. As we record this, uh, the voting for uh, the 2024 Grammys has already closed. And so we'll know very soon whether or not uh, because your debut album on the Alpha label uh, will have won a Grammy, uh, your collaboration with Baptiste Trottignon. Um, and I feel like that speaks like the success of this album uh, speaks to your uh, you know, individuality. I think we talked about this album a couple of years ago when you were planning it. You said, oh, I'm going to work with Alpha. And they said, I could do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and like, so you are very you on this album. And uh, it's a s- completely individualistic endeavor. It's like extremely original. And yet there's something that's very familiar about, obviously, these tunes. A lot of them are spirituals that we've heard sung many times. 
But um, yeah, this album ends up being something that people can just listen to, like just put it on and listen to the whole thing through. And it also could be a study of the bridge between classical music and jazz and gospel. Was that all intended or did it just happen to end up that way? Um, once we figured it out, yes, it was absolutely intended because, I mean, it's, I think of this album as I mean, similarly the way I thought of American Originals, that I, the album I recorded with, with Agave Baroque, um, as not so much, uh, a piece of, a piece of music or an album, but it's kind of a siege engine to me. It's it's a tool to really to really start attacking these walls that we've that we've that we've put up around styles and genres, especially you know first of first and foremost around classical music and what what we can think of as serious music, our classical music, which I think it's time to rethink and and readjust and shift the narrative around around mm-hmm. that, but also in showing that. No matter the style or genre, there has there is a common tie that connects all music, and that is the very thing that that we should think about, which is which is emotion, which is feeling, which is understanding and compassion. I mean, the thing that links you and me to Bach, to Taylor Swift, to whoever comes twenty years from now, is the fact that we all feel anger we all feel hate we all love we all feel joy and music is a is a, is a guardian is a safekeeper of, of these these things that connect connects all of humanity together and i think if we allow ourselves again it's all about giving ourselves permission to realize that this isn't indicative of just classical music or this just isn't indicative of spirituals our country but all music seeks to find that deeper connection between all of us that that it 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 I mean it all matters it all it all it all makes sense it all clicks together and so I I I like shifting I like moving around from different genres but working to bring down those barriers and show that yes spirituals is you know jazz classical it, it's all it's all coming from the same place. It's all coming from us. Well, you're known as a expert in Bach and in other Baroque styles. Um, how can we, you know, take the lessons learned from the success of Because and show and share that with our colleagues who are presenting early music? Be honest. It, it's, it's not rocket science. Just be honest and allow yourself to be vulnerable and share things honestly. Don't patronize or try and guess what people want. Give what you know that you can give with conviction and people people will, will gravitate towards it. I honestly thought that no one would like this album. You know, I it was it was a it was a wild shot, you know, that I thought to to take at a time where People don't really know a lot of Florence Price and Harry Burley and, and some of these songs as they're performed naturally. But to then push past that and take them out a whole new door in the way that you would take it, you know, jazz standards of, you know, like with Gershwin and, and, and Kern and Porter. I thought maybe it was too soon, but 
but I wanted to do it because I thought it had something to say. I thought there was something in this project that just needed to be said at this time, at this moment. And I think that's what people should be able to, to take from this, is that if you feel something, that if you feel that you have something to say in some way through through projects, particularly in early music, it's important to do so. Like I, I mentioned, you know, the idea of emotion and feelings and connecting each other, you know, one thing that that I think makes me prime to to speak in, in the ways that I do, as someone who sits between classical music and things like black music and, and spirituals, is that, I mean, think of the idea that in 1618, the Thirty Years' War began. One year later, the first slave ship hit Jamestown. These two incredible events that changed the lives of of a people, of a nation, of 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 just of of lives happen these same times. And and just at you know, as you know, people in Germany after the Thirty Years' War were using this music using music to 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 kind of process grief and make sense of a confusing world, what were my ancestors doing on fields? I mean, these you know, these spirituals, these songs were being sung at the same time that Bach and Handel themselves were also writing. These things didn't happen in different like different times. These happened at the same time. And it's important to realize that that there is a link between, you know, my ancestors and the ancestors of someone who lives in Germany and France now. That that coming out of the Thirty Years' War, they didn't know what was going on. They 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 tried to to use music and and figure out what life was now. And in the same way that was happening in fields in the in the, in the American South. I mean, it's we are more connected than people. I mean, than we allow ourselves to truly realize. It's 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 not. It's, I mean, it's completely unique, all of our struggles, of course, but there is still a commonality that connects us all. We still need to make sense of life. And I think we, if once we all realize that, that we're on this little, little marble together, figure things bounce out, we can, we can compare notes, we can figure things out. Sweet dreamland faces passing to and fro bring back to memory days of long ago murmuring gently through a mist of pain hope on the loved one we shall meet again so at the top of that, we heard a little bit of Baptiste Trottignon and Reginald Mobley performing Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child. To close the interview, we heard a live performance of Reginald Mobley with guitarist Brandon Aker singing Justin Holland's Dream Faces. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The 2024 Grammys were awarded yesterday. Best Opera Recording went to Terrence Blanchard's Champion, starring friend of the show Ryan Speedo Green. Best Choral Performance was awarded to an album dedicated to OBS Hall of Famer, the late Kaya Sariaho. 
And Best Classical Solo Vocal Album went to Julia Bullock and Christian Reif for Walking in the Dark, making us O and 4 for Friends of the Show in that category. So much for the OBS bump. Womp womp. LA Opera has announced their 2024-25 season, and it won't include the world premiere of Mason Bates' The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay for financial reasons. The co-commission with the Met will premiere at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music before moving to the Met as planned in its 25-26 season. More about LA season in the talkback. The Dutch National Opera and Ballet has been awarded another Building Research Establishment Environmental Assessment Method, or BREAM, sustainability certificate for its production workshop. The company made a 20% improvement on its rating from 2019, including solar panels, rainwater diversion, and green transportation options for employees. Carlos Calmar is suing the Cleveland Institute of Music for defamation, seeking at least $25 million in damages. Calmar was the subject of a Title IX investigation at CIM, but was cleared last August, then placed on leave of absence from CIM's orchestral studies and conducting programs. More discussion after the drill. Upper Parallel is racking up points, and by points we mean dollars, with three <laughs> major grants to support upcoming projects. A $25,000 grant from the National Endowment of the Arts is earmarked for the premiere of Birds and balls. That's a follow-up from last week's drill. San Francisco's grants for the arts has supplied a $36,500 sum for general operations, and the California Arts Council has given Opera Parallel a grant of $21,000 to support the company's showcase of transgender and non-binary artists. Soprano Elizabeth Hanje, an alumna of Houston Grand Opera's Young Artist Vocal Academy and a senior at Oberlin Conservatory, has won Houston Grand Opera's Arias Competition. Hanjay's program included two full lyric soprano arias, Ain't It a Pretty Night from Susanna, and Il est doux, il est bon from Herodiade. The panel of judges included San Francisco Opera's Unsung Kim, HGO General Director Corey Dostor, and HGO Music Director Patrick Summers. In trade news, friend of the show Jennifer Rivera has announced via social media that she will step down as General Director and CEO of Long Beach Opera later this month. Meanwhile, Opera Theatre of St. Louis is extending the contract to principal conductor and friend of the show Daniela Candelari. She will now remain with the company through 2028. Toledo Opera Executive Director Suzanne Rorick will retire at the end of the season. Co-Artistic Directors James M. Norman and Kevin Bilsma will succeed her as General Director and Artistic Director. And Chattanooga Symphony and Opera has announced that Susan W. Caminez will be their new Executive Director, taking over for John Kilkenny. She previously served the company as Director of Education and Community Impact. On the disabled list, Jonas Kaufman postponed a concert last week at Teatro San Carlo due to an undisclosed illness. The concert's set to go ahead in March. Julia Bullock has also canceled concerts with the Philharmonia due to a back injury. And Diana Domrau caught an upper respiratory infection that led to her canceling upcoming concerts in Belgium, Germany, and New York City. Exit stage right reports on social media suggest that soprano Wilhelmina Fernandez has died at the age of 74 or 75. Born in Philadelphia, she starred in the 1981 film Diva by French director Jean-Jacques Benet. Fernandez trained at AVA and Juilliard before making her debut as Bess in HGO's Porgy and Bess, a production which toured both the U.S. and Europe. Notable roles for her include the title roles in Carmen, Carmen Jones, for which she received an Olivier Award, and Aida. 
And on this day, February 5th in 1679, Alessandro's first, Alessandro Scarlatti's first opera, Equivoci nel Sembiante, premiered in Rome. German composer Christian Gottlob Neffe, one for the Neffe heads out there, was born on this day <laughs> in 1748. 1816 saw that old chestnut Rossini's Barber of Seville's first performance in Rome, and the Austrian tenor Alfred Picaver was born in Vienna in 1883. Four years later, 1887, the first performance of Verdi's Otello took place in at La Scala in Milan, including a cello section with none other than Arturo Tos Toscanini. 1911, Swedish tenor Jussi Björling was born, and it, six years later, 1917, Aust Austrian bass baritone Otto Edelmann was born in Vienna. English conductor Sir John Pritchard was born in 1921. 1939 saw the first performance of Karl Orff's opera Der Mond in Munich, and one for our hometown team in 1954. The Lyric Opera of Chicago presents its first production, Mozart's Don Giovanni. And that's your two-minute drill. bit of the late Wilhelmina Wiggins Fernandez singing the aria from Catalani's La Wally. La Valley. La Valley, the aria that made her <laughs> famous. She was probably famous before, but that's if you're going to remember anything about Miss Fernandez, it was that movie Diva, which, uh, you know, bringing opera to film back in the uh, 80s. That was back a, in the, big, the days yeah. of reel to reel tapes, <laughs> VHS tapes. Yeah, yeah. I remember those days. I don't. I'm too young. Let's talk about the Grammys. Uh, we have a couple of, you know, I, I, honestly, I, I was about to say a couple of, of unexpected things. But honestly, no, this has been a pretty straightforward Grammys and almost, I think, disappointingly so, at least for me. Uh, for uh, in the opera category, we had um, uh, a bunch of nominees, including a uh, friend of the show, David T. Little's Black Lodge. Uh, also, Corleano's Lord of Cries. Uh, what else did we have? Um, and, and the winner, the third, uh, the and third the winner, nominee yes. was the, the winner. winner. <laughs> Terrence Blanchard's <laughs> champion with Yannick Nezis again and Ryan Speedo Green. Um, now, uh, this is, you know, a, a pretty solid, you know, a, a great cast, pretty well recorded for live stuff. But once again, it's just the audio rip of a live in HD. And you know, I've and had this just rant before. try just try to buy it. Wes and I spent like half an hour trying to buy this <laughs> album. <laughs> it is a mess. You can't you do have access to it. It is hard to get. 
It's uh, I believe it's a it's an Apple exclusive, so uh, you can yeah. still buy it on iTunes, but it's um, these you're not going to be able to go out and yeah. yeah, exactly. You're not going to be able to go out to your your local uh, Target and pick this one up. But in fairness, you can't do that with anything uh, in the classical genre these days. But it's it's you, you know you won't be able to add it to your Zune, but you can listen yes, on an old iPod. <laughs> <laughs> Get that click wheel running. Best classical solo vocal album is the next category we're going to talk about, and we had. We Four had and lots five of cha- friends of the show. Yeah, I yeah. Know. And Julia Bullock, who we want to be a friend of the show, she won. And like, she's been a prominent artist for years. And I'm very happy for her because, you know, she's also, uh, she fits very well into the brand of what we do here. But so does everybody else. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a great year for representation in the classical solo vocal album. There was no Joyce DiDonato. There was no Renee Fleming. So we had people who are really like out there in the trenches trying to do the work. Reginald Mobley, Kareem Suleiman, Laura Strickling, Larry Brownlee. But Julia Bullock won, so congratulations. Yeah, and Laura Strickling in particular, that project 40 at 40 was an undertaking that she basically orchestrated. And I don't mean like writing the orchestral parts. I mean like putting together. She assembled right, yeah. that group. She yeah, assembled she, that team she, herself. Yeah, she commissioned, well, she's only commissioned 20 at this point, but it's part one of a two-album uh, project. Maybe uh, this will to, be her her Return of the King moment in a couple of years, yeah. and they'll award yeah. the whole album after part right. two. It'll after be like Shit's Creek next year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I also have to give Laura props because she is known for creating and working with her brilliant seamstress of a mother to create her own gowns. She documented, I encourage you to check out her social media, she documented all of the different gowns and the outfits that she had. For one of her Grammy portraits, she had a gown made that had all of the collaborators' names sewn into the gown in like handwriting. Oh, I it was love really that. Stunning. Um, <laughs> do we get like half of a point for Julia Bullock since on um, Walking in the Dark, she sings uh, Knoxville, Summer of 1915. So. I think we should count it. <laughs> I think Friends yeah, of the show, yeah, Knoxville, yeah. Summer of 1915. <laughs> it, is, okay. it, it is such a good album. Unfortunately, one composer who did not win and, in fact, was not nominated was Mason Bates. And now he can't even have his world <sighs> premiere anymore. I feel kind of bad. Well, he still will. It'll just be at a college. (laughs) But in 2026, it'll be in uh, Madden HD broadcast, and then that will win a Grammy in 2027. So, So, what else um, is happening at LA Opera this season? Well, friend of the show, Duke Kim, uh, is continuing his run as the uh, Korean American uh, Romeo of Note, uh, singing Romeo and Juliet with Amina Edris. I'd see it. We'll have uh, Korean soprano Kara Son uh, singing Madame Butterfly opposite Jonathan Tettleman, who is the Puccini tenor of our moment, at least at the Met. Uh, Cozy Fantute Quartet will be Erica Petrocelli, Reb Chayeb, uh, Justin Austin, and Anthony Leon. And Anadamar, which is for you, Weston, uh, will feature a friend of the piece. show, Ana Maria Martinez, and a friend of the show, Daniela Mack. And then we'll have friend of the show, Quinn Kelsey, singing Rigoletto. Uh, it seems that the Anitamar is now their kind of edgy. I was going to say, a notably yeah. squarer season with. Uh, yeah. yeah. Considering with the they Mason did Omar Bates last cut. year. So, yeah. But, you know, same thing with the Met. I think the Met is recalibrating. Everybody's recalibrating right now after being very yeah. bold, you know. 
Yeah, I wish they were a little bolder. At the same time, you know, Mason Bates is, eh, I'm not fully sold on him. He's got a, he's got his moments. Aww. Let's turn now to our legal expert, now that I've defamed no, he's, uh, Mason no, he's Bates. he's not coming on the show anytime soon. Let, let, <laughs> let's turn to our legal expert, Ashley Hardgrave. Talk us through what's going on with this Title IX defamation suit. Oh, good Lord, how much time do you have? Okay. Um, <laughs> well, so we got like three minutes. The... Wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so these are some of the hits. Tell you a little bit about why I think he has a case, why he might not win, but if he does, might be curtains for a major conservatory. So, okay, quick thing on Title IX. So Title IX is about discrimination on the basis of sex. It's not necessarily specifically tied to sexual harassment, sexual violence, sexual assault. So what Kalmar and his team are suing for is the fallout and the repercussion of what happened to him and what he alleges is his career when he was at the center of a Title IX investigation at the Cleveland Institute of Music. Kalmar, I think, has a case. Um, so when we look at the statements, the very public statements of the Title IX coordinator at the time and Dean Southern, they sent these wide-reaching emails that were at best inappropriate. At worst, they were super illegal regarding uh, Title IX. Basically, there's a protection in Title IX that says no one can be named during the investigation. So not the accuser, not the subject of the investigation. And the Title IX coordinator basically was like, hey guys, we're doing an investigation into Calmar. Anybody have anything? Yeah, you can't do that. Like, you can't you can't do that. Um, so that's a little bit of a problem. Even Dean Southern's statement, which mm. we talked about on this show, based on where it was in the timeline, he should not have mentioned uh, I am assuming he should not have mentioned Kalmar's name. There's no way people didn't know this was Kalmar, but at the same time, being so overt in the mentioning of him, that is that is something that I think they have a legal leg to stand on. It, it may not rise to the legality of Title IX, whatever happened in whatever behavior it was they were trying to address. Um, and if it didn't, I mean, it's going to depend on the judge. It's really going to depend on how the judge reads the facts of the case that the prosecution is is putting out. The other thing that I think doesn't really work in their favor is the... So I took way too much time reading the actual case filing in the federal district in Ohio where this is being filed. And uh, Kalmar's lawyers actually used the term canceled in the actual filing. They were like, Kalmar has been canceled. God. And that's one of the things that we're seeking damages for. It, it, yeah, a little, little rough. Um, but they are. They're seeking at minimum $25 million. Oh, I, you know, we'll see what happens. But if he wins and if he is awarded this, I'm pretty sure that's going to be the end of CIM. I just feel like they've been so long beleaguered. This is like the most recent in a litany of problems that have been happening in terms of staff and faculty turnover and fiscal insolvency. I just don't think if they win, even if they continue to appeal this, which they have the right to do if they are found liable, I'm just not sure they're going to be able to financially recover. So uh, in short, it's messy and it's got hair all over it. Um, I don't think anybody is squeaky clean here, but in terms of legal precedent and the way Title IX investigations are supposed to go, he's got a case to at least file a lawsuit. Ashley, remind me to call you next time I have a parking ticket. That was some <laughs> thorough legal analysis. It's like uh, I work at a law school. <laughs> That'll do Almost. it. Uh, quickly, before we wrap up the show, I did want to talk about um, Jenny Rivera's announcement that she's leaving uh, Long Beach Opera. It's my understanding that she is uh, staying in admi arts administration. She's just moving to Los Angeles Music Center. Which is a seventy million dollar organization. So, uh, which is the resident resident companies are LA Phil, LA Opera, LA Master Chorale. But she's not going to be working specifically on opera. Anyway, the, with her 
departure that now uh, we add to the list Lyric Opera of Chicago, uh, Opera Philadelphia, Seattle, to a certain extent, Florida Grand Opera, which has an interim, and Marola uh, Training Center are all wow. places that are, are don't have leadership. What is going on? In the House of Commons. Um, Lydia Yankovskaya says, House friend of, friend of the show says, uh, Lydia Yankovskaya says, I can think of multiple people of all backgrounds ready for some of these positions. People who have the experience and background in organizations of different sizes are great leaders and have been grinding away and doing good work behind the scenes, sometimes not noticed by the field at large. <clears throat> I think the big, that's me. I, big, <laughs> I think the big barrier is that these searches are often overseen by large search firms who often tend to only put forward those who have already gained notice, mm -hmm. not do really thorough research and also perpetuate bias for many reasons. Thoughtful recruitment combined with an open search may yield a fabulous but unexpected candidate, but a search firm needs to be first and foremost first first and foremost protect itself and its reputation, so is highly incentivized to play it as safe as possible. This can leads to this can lead to all kinds of barriers and bias. Once again, Lidinkovskaya has crystallized what is happening in the arts world. I have personal experience with <laughs> search it. firms. Yeah. Um, and uh, I applied for the Chicago Opera Theater job. You know, Larry Adelson obviously is way more qualified than I am. But uh, I wasn't even, you know, given an interview. And I've been chugging away here for how many years, you know, working in this field. So <laughs> anyway, anybody listening to this uh, podcast that has, uh, you know, are part of a search committee, um, I could do a job. <laughs> but it has to be here because you can't leave. Yeah, not for a yes, while. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if you if you are a headhunter, you're hunting for heads. Oliver's got real top notch head. head. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Ah, uh, good call, bad call. That's how we wrap up the show around here. Let's start with Oliver. Uh, just shout out to friend of the show, Aaron Morley. Uh, sings um, Morgana in the brand new recording of Alcina, uh, which is with um, the musician de Louvre and uh, what's his name? Mark, Mark Minkowski. Minkowski. Yeah. Uh, we love her so much. That's on the Pentatone label. It just came out. Uh, weirdly, it has um, Magdalena Kojina as Alcina. She's still around? Uh, yeah. Um, but also has Elizabeth DeShong as Bradamante, and right. she's awesome. Mm. Yeah. Matt Cummings. I would like to extend our Grammy segment to uh, offer a hearty congratulations to Elaine Martone for her win as Classical Producer of the Year. Her, I believe, fifth oh, yeah. time, though some sources are saying sixth time winning that award. Uh, and one of the albums that she produced last year was my group's album, Man Up, Man Down, by Constellation Men's Ensemble. Oh. So very exciting to um, have second-hand Grammys. <laughs> That's how that works. Ashley That Hargrave. is how that works. <laughs> well, I had mentioned earlier in the show that my birthday is this week. So what better way to celebrate than perform a really dumb show that you wrote? Uh, so if you're in the <laughs> Chicagoland area this Friday, February the 9th, uh, you can come and see the 44 show. There's some classical music. There's some not classical music. There's stories. There's comedy. It is sure to thrill some and disappoint others. You can find more information <laughs> at MercuryTheaterChicago.com uh, or you can just DM me on socials and I'll send you the link. My good call is box office workers. I was terribly, horribly sick last week, as you might have been able to tell by uh, how uh, amazing I was on the show last week. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had to 
change uh, my tickets for Lyric Opera Chicago's Cenerentola, which was uh, very sad because I, I really, really wanted to see it, but I was so worried that I wouldn't be able to change those tickets, but I called the box office, and you know what? Box office workers, front of house people are heroes. The amount of stuff they have to put up with on a daily basis from patrons asking for unreasonable seat changes and yelling and getting annoyed at fees and like handling everything so professionally and so well. You know, if you know any front of house or box office workers in your life, give them a hug. They're just the best. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Get your voice heard and find links to the stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. That's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS using the Support the Team tab. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editors are me, myself, and I. For co-hosts Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave with guest Reginald Mobley, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera in a maybe rural, maybe southern flyover-y kind of state. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more green transportation options. Join us.